So you get told you're not going to make it to the Olympics because you're bad at sprinting. What did you do? Because you made it to the Olympics. <laughs> I I told the guy that's what they told Tom Brady, and he looked back at me and he said, "You're no Tom Brady." And at that point, I was like, "Well, goddamn." AJ Edelman, welcome to the podcast. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad that we were able to get you on. Sliding into the DMs works I, occasionally. I mean, if it nailed me this goodness, uh, I am all for it. Did you catch my pun? Actually, I just realized it now. I, I Sliding? Did, I did catch the pun. Um, you're our first athlete on the podcast. How does that honor compare to being an Olympian? <laughs> I feel like athletes would love this kind of stuff. Uh, it's a very, well, what you have is awesome. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm very honored to be the first athlete on the podcast to, to 120 more. You're welcome. That's funny. If anyone who wasn't Jewish, <laughs> they didn't get that. It's all right, no. Mish, Mish mm-hmm. humor. We love it. So I have read your Wikipedia page. Um, yes, he has a Wikipedia page. And so does your dad. Why don't you give your elevator pitch for the people listening? Who are you? What's your childhood trauma like? Let's get into it. <laughs> I'm an Israeli sliding sport athlete, as you mentioned. Sliding sports are the umbrella term for bobsled, skeleton, and luge. Bobsled, almost everyone knows about because the movie Cool Running. Skeleton is a headfirst version of luge, and luge people have just seen at one point people dressed up in spandex uh, sliding down a mountain. So it's <laughs> um, that that is what I've been doing for the last nine years. I represent Israel very proudly. I would only ever represent Israel. I represented them in the 2018 Olympics. My bobsled team hit the Olympic standard last year, uh, but missed out by one spot because there's a strict quota on the amount of of nations that can send a single sled, of which we were number eight of seven. And then uh, currently I still run and captain and pilot the bobsled team uh, in its current iteration. And we have three years to go until the next Olympic Games, which we intend to be at in Yes. And we'll get into that. You're also a Forbes 30 under 30, aren't you? Uh, that is true, although I have to caution people. It's not nearly as fun as you might think. Like, you don't, it's just a list. It, it's not really yeah. a thing. Like, there's no secret little WhatsApp groups or something. You're like, compared to being an Olympian, who cares about Forbes? Well, no, it's compared to being anything. Like, someone just yeah. puts you on a list. Like, Put yourself mm-hmm. on a list. Call it 30 under 30. Now you're 30 under 30. I'm in Lexi's 30 under 30. You can be in Lexi's 30 under 30 too. I would love are to you... be in 30 under 30. Are you under 30? No. I just hit so 30. You... <laughs> you can make a guest appearance. I, <laughs> I identify. Special it. honor. I identify as 30. All right. Let's take it back before we get to the fun Olympian stuff. Um how does a kid, you know, usually kids growing up are aiming to be in the NBA or something like that. When when did you um, dash those dreams of either becoming a football player or basketball player and uh, want to get into sliding sports? When did I knife those dreams? Just mm-hmm. stick them for good. Really, what it was was after the after my senior season at school i was playing hockey at mit and i was offered a chance to play for the israeli hockey team so you started in hockey i did i played hockey since i was three years old and i'm assuming ice hockey ice hockey yeah um a lot of my friends in school whenever i mentioned hockey they all thought it was field hockey i know that it's very very popular in some parts of the world 
growing up in Boston, men playing field hockey was just not really a thing. I did play hockey through university and the Israeli hockey team came a calling and they said, you know, why don't you join our team? We'd love to have you. And I thought at the time, if I'm going to continue to push the boundaries of what I think is possible for myself in sport, playing hockey for Israel is really not what I consider to be a top priority. It The marginal benefit of me joining the Israeli hockey team is just not that great. But I can have a larger impact in competing in other sports if I can use that as a platform to potentially start a foundation to get funds and coaching and resources to underrepresented or you know Jewish communities that typically don't invest in sport and would allow children to pursue their athletic dreams in the future. And so that's how I got started on the road to Olympic sport. So going back, you are from Boston. Uh, Brookline. Brookline is right next to Boston. It's where all the Jews used to live. Now the Jews live in Newton. And by, I, I know if people hear this out of context, they're going to be like, why is he calling out the Jews? I'm Jewish. I'm not <laughs> Jewish. Be weird if I was like, it's where all the Jews are. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I stay out of that area. <laughs> okay, so you are a child of two parents who are really awesome. We'll get into them. And also three siblings. You are, Where do you fall in the ranking of your siblings? Where and I, I mean, not in value as in birth order. <laughs> I'm the middle child. And so I think there's a lot of, historically, whenever I've come across people who are also middle children, they seem to think, or they seem to want to classify me as like a, as like a middle child. I don't really know what mm-hmm. that means. We have a very mm-hmm. atypical family. Middle children, they have a certain energy. Do but we? You're, not giving, you're not giving middle child. What is middle child energy? I need to know. I feel like middle child is like, you know, I'm not the oldest. I'm not the youngest. So I wasn't the first born, the one with the most (laughs) responsibility. Um, And I'm also not the youngest who like got the most attention. So like the middle child kind of feels like Hufflepuff. (laughs) First of all, I don't understand why people don't like being in Hufflepuff. Like Hufflepuff sounds great. Sounds like Jigglypuff, which was a great little Pokemon when I was a kid. I haven't heard that take before in defense of Hufflepuffs. But also, I'm not a middle child, so I can't speak to the experience of middle children. I want to just clarify. Were you like the athletic one? Were your siblings like the funny ones? What was life like? (laughs) I think my younger brother, Austin, was the most athletic of all of us. He's really talented, very genetically gifted. Austin did basketball, he played baseball, he played hockey. Austin is just spectacular at all of that. Alex is indeed, of course, funny. He is a comedian. I'm far funnier. He gets paid to do it, though. Um, I just kind of stand on the sidelines and judge. Over the course of time, Austin, Alex, and myself all drastically shifted in our approaches to life, what our goals were. We're a very non-static family in general. And so there was a lot of shifting around in terms of identities and what we wanted for ourselves. In school was the first time that I really adopted more of like an identity of I was a hockey player. But prior to that and since then, my identity has just shifted constantly. Now I'd say I'm an Israeli athlete. Uh, I very much refrain from saying that my identity is tied into the Olympics because the Olympics are a byproduct of the work that you put in to accomplish what you want to accomplish for your country. Saying, defining yourself by the metric of having competed at a, at a games is, is very, it's almost insulting to your own efforts 
because those games represented, let's say, two weeks of a journey that's now spanned nine years. Yeah. They, and, and the team, I said, team and myself missed out on the past games. Mm-hmm. And so would, would my identity have shifted from a Olympian to a double Olympian? Like, no, it would have just been like, I'm still an Israeli athlete. I'm very proud to be an Israeli athlete. So our, our identities, I can't speak for Austin, I can't speak for Alex. Uh, but my identity has been constantly shifting throughout, you know, my time of whatever my goal is, it kind of my identity takes on my, my, you know, the shape of, of my goal. Let's get into what your parents do and kind of what it was like growing up with them and uh, what they taught you growing up. I'd say number one thing I should always mention is they are supportive. So they were always heavily interested in seeing us pursue what we'd wanted to pursue and then find the success through our efforts of, you know, of, of pursuing those paths. So when it came to hockey, my father was an incredibly busy physician, runs a lab at MIT, is a professor, head of an institute. Like the guy is very busy. And he was, he was at every single one of my hockey games as a kid, every single one without fail. Wow. And he, I mean, it was incredible. He he really is one of the most spectacular father figures that one could ever ask for. He w- was a pioneer on modernizing the stent, which uh, is putting people's arteries to keep them open. I don't really know how to describe him other than the smartest dude you'd ever meet. Very, very humble. You would never know it if you just yeah. met him. Uh, he's incredible. Those are the best kind of people. He, he, he yeah. sets an example that we should all... You know, all three of us, of us boys, of us Edelman boys, should aspire to be. And then my mom is also a brilliant real estate attorney. Um, she's one of the most honest human beings that I've met, and so, um, and so she would never see the inside of a courtroom. I guess she's not a litigator. She she helps people. They they're the reason that all three of us boys have been able to strike out and uh, and to look for our own paths of what to pursue. I mean, I faced no pressure from dad whatsoever to be in medicine. I faced no pressure from mom to be in yeah. law. I was going to say, none of you are in law or science, are you? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, Austin is in tech. My younger brother is in tech. I was in tech for a while. We, we my, my mom went to MIT for a master's. My dad went to MIT for undergraduate and PhD. And then I went to MIT as an undergrad and Austin went to MIT as an undergrad. So we're kind of like an MIT family. So what are some of the lessons that you learned from your parents growing up? I think it's very hard to put into specific modular lessons what I learned. I think almost everything that I have become by some form of osmosis has been taken from their positive lessons. So work ethic, um, trying to proudly represent who you are and what you do striving to be the best that you can be if you're if you're attempting uh something you know not slacking and not not doing it half you know just a half measure so it's very hard to say specifically mom and dad taught me this mom and dad taught me that they taught me everything let's get into the fun stuff of sliding sports what is bobsledding and skeleton mings so skeletoning, uh, <laughs> bobsledding. Is that not right? <laughs> so skeleton is a head first version of bobsled. So imagine bobsled is like if you were to take a school bus and then top chop off the top of the school bus. 
seven foot long school bus, room for four in it, right? And you hop in and you slide it down a mountain, driving it down an ice tunnel. That ice tunnel Woo. is like, yeah, it's it's basically a mile long. Takes sixty basically seconds. Basically sledding. It is. It's tobogganing. It's tobogganing, but on ice. It, it is an ice track rather than a snow track. So it's not like skiing. It's it's almost as if you were to strap some hockey blades, some ice hockey blades to the bottom of a lunch tray. And that would okay. be that would be skeleton. Skeleton is where you just have a board. The board goes from your knees to your shoulders and okay. you slide down uh, you slide down a mountain. On your stomach. On your stomach. Head first. Head first. Head first. Wow. Uh-huh. Okay. The basic premise of it is that it's a race, right? You need to get to the bottom as quick as you can in the shortest amount of time. So everyone goes one after the other. You know, you finish your you finish your run, the next person goes. At the end of two runs, they tally up the time and the lowest combined time is the winner. And they're different courses? Every every bobsled track in the world is built differently. It has a different length, it has different gradations, different kinds of curves, different speeds. So yeah. the, the the bobsled track in Whistler, British Columbia, you can get to like 93, 94 miles an hour. While the bobsled track in, let's say, Lake Placid, you get up to 83, 84 miles an hour. So that 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 difference is huge. And, and and we feel that. I mean, the layperson would just be crushed by the G-forces. So we undergo five G-forces. G-forces are, you know, if, if you're ever in a roller coaster and you feel all that pressure against you, or if you're in a car that takes a sharp turn and it pushes you against the that's a G-force. So G-forces accumulate to five in bobsled, up to five. And that means if you weigh 100 pounds, you'll feel like 500 pounds. If you weigh 200 pounds, you'll feel like 1,000 pounds. So most people in... You know, if you're just a lay person, you'd only feel the pressure and you wouldn't really be able to distinguish between 95 or 93, 86, 87. But I can tell a difference between 91 and 90. How do you prepare for that? By doing it a lot and getting hurt a mm-hmm. lot. Uh, you have a lot of off-ice training mentally, visual, you know, mental prep. So all the time I'll be going through mental mind runs, meaning preparing you know, what I might theoretically steer in the track, I'd go through it in my mind. But aside from that, nothing replaces experience, which is one of the things that makes it such an expensive sport. Bob said yeah. is probably on average, like $150,000 to $200,000 a season. And that's wow. without top-notch coaching. So you just had to pick. It's awful. It's really put a damper in, your da- in my dating life too. No one really wants to date someone who spends all of his income on doing this. I should have just stuck with hockey. It would have been so much better. It's a little too late now. <laughs> it is too late. Sunken cost analysis. I've been doing it for nine years. I can't stop. What is your schedule like with training? It's very seasonal. So from October through March, that's the time that we can technically be on ice. All the tracks in the world exist in the Northern Hemisphere. The most recent one was in Beijing. You have one in Sochi, Russia. You have three in North America, four in Germany, and then one in um, Austria, one in France, one in Norway. What that means is that for the April to October time period, you can't really do the sport. You can't slide. You can practice components of the sport. So we sprint a lot in sport, which is why I was given a, a scouting report originally that said I would never make the Olympics. I was told that it would be impossible for me to ever make the games because I was a terrible sprinter. And so all we do for five, six months is sprint and lift. Sprint and lift, sprint and lift. For me, there's a lot more than just sprinting and lifting. All the logistics of the team come into play, recruiting, 
making sure our equipment's going to be uh, up to code and par, finding a coach if I can afford it. Fundraising is a huge problem because I need to fundraise a lot of money. I'm very bad at fundraising, the worst. Um, I don't think there's ever been a Bob Sutter who's worse at fundraising. Um, it makes it makes things difficult, but it's unfortunately part of the job. And so what that means is generally I hold down a full-time job and I also hold down a second full-time job, which is the team. So the team usually takes about eight hours plus. It is tough, but it is what it is. If you want to make something happen in your life, you have to go make it happen. Nothing just falls into your lap. So, uh, I mean, usually nothing falls into your lap. I, I haven't heard of a real success story just falling into their lap. Going back, you mentioned that you were first told there was no way you were going to make it to the Olympics. Correct. Let's walk back to your thought process when you first heard that and what uh, you did after. I wanted to tell the dude to F himself. It was, uh, <laughs> I was called into an office. I went to try the sport in 2014, March of 2014. I was uh, sent to try the sport in Lake Placid. About five day long kind of assessment camp as to whether you're going to be anything in the sport or not. And after those five days, I was called into an office and I was told very, very matter of factly, like, this is not the sport for you. You'll never make the Olympics. Like, you should stop immediately. At the time, there was a whole lot of pain associated with that because it's kind of like being rejected by a girl who you know is wrong for you, right? <laughs> there's still rejection. No, no, no. There, there's still rejection. It still stings. You don't uh -huh. want to be rejected. Like, I don't know if anyone's listening on the podcast, but I feel like we've all had moments where like, we know someone's not right for us, even if it was like after a first date, but the other person's like, we should stop, you know, we should not go mm -hmm. forward. And then, yeah. you're like, oh man, why did they want me? Right. So um, it was kind of like that. It, Rejection I, sucks no matter who's rejecting you or what's rejecting you. That is correct. I so, feel like it's a, it's a similar thing with, uh, with college. Yeah, you know, school's so. rejected you and it sucks. And then you realize, oh, wait, I love the school that I was at. I feel like these past four years, the most significant uh, times in my life have been forming the bonds with my boys. I call them my boys. They're the ones who sit in the back of the sled with me. Um, <laughs> people who push the sled are the brakemen and the pushers. Okay. So it, there's two disciplines in the sport, a two-man discipline and a four-man discipline. In two-man, it's just me and someone pushing the sled. They jump in the back and they pull the brakes at the end. In four-man, it's me driving the sled with three guys in the back who push it, and then they jump in one after the other. Over the course of the past few years, seven or eight different push athletes have joined the team at various points in time. And all of them are my brothers, and we've had some very intimate, shared experiences, scary, near-death experiences. Like Bob said, it's a very dangerous sport. You develop a very close camaraderie and brother, you know, brotherhood. So you get told you're not going to make it to the Olympics because you're bad at sprinting. What right. did you do? Because you uh, made it to the Olympics. <laughs> I I told the guy that's what they told Tom Brady, and he looked back at me and he said, "You're no Tom Brady." And at that point, I was like, "Well, goddamn." Yeah, he's like, he's like, "You suck, man." Like, I was like, "All right, well then, then this is gonna happen." So is this where we insert like the training Rocky montage of you like sprinting <laughs> up mountains and if we if we ever get a documentary, it would be, I think, quite the story to tell. Over the next four years, I watched ten to twelve hours of YouTube video per day. Um, slept in cars, couch surfed, like the whole the whole globe uh, that I possibly could. And I thought if I need ten thousand hours to get to 
top tier proficiency. The only way to do that is doing like 10 to 12 hours a day or more, like 14 hours a day, something like that for four years. How are you going to do that when you can only slide on ice for 60 seconds at a time, three or four times a day? The maximum people do in skeleton is like three runs for their, for their health. I ended up doing on average eight runs a day. Um, and then, and then I would go home and watch this 10 hours of video and I, I was relentless. I was, I was fanatical about getting Israel to those games. Something that I feel almost sad that I don't have, um, that kind of same experience anymore. As you grow up, you mature and realize that you shouldn't, you know, it dominates your life to, to, yeah. to have an extent. Um, I couldn't hold a job and do that. Uh, I right. couldn't. You couldn't go to school and do that. But that was some sort of fanatical uh, run that culminated in success. Thankfully, thankfully, that's, you know, th- that's, how it, that's how it happened. Like, I left the guy's office and I swore to myself, I was like, I will not give up until Israel has this success. And that's, you know, thankfully, it worked out. What is it like going down the slope? Man, that's an interesting question. Everyone always asks, like, what is it like? I mean, it, skeleton, I hate it. I mean, I have to say I hated skeleton. I disliked the sport immensely. It was extremely painful, and I went through a lot of pain. I also slid what was called... Like going down, it's painful? Very much. Going first, down the mountain? I was hitting tons of walls. I couldn't keep my head up under the the forces, so my head was dragging on the ice. It was like constantly being hit in the head by a boxer. I always wanted to do bobsled. Bobsled was my baby. That's one where you're sitting and it's that's the one where you're sitting and I'm you know, you drive it with your hands. Um I was told that finding a second person to do Bob said with me would be the biggest challenge. And so I think I had realized that if I could self-propel a journey, I could have closure if it didn't work. Right? I failed. It's very hard to find people who also want to give up a lot of their time and life and income and relationships to go and and live in minus 20 degree weather, um, you know, where, where they're used to basically just being in the sun all the time. I mean, that's really tough. And so I, I, I had known at the time that finding a second person or finding a brakeman would be impossible, especially when Israel had never yet qualified for a games and sliding sports. So, you're going and selling them your dream, right? But people can't change their lives based on your dream. They also have to dream it as well. What was your favorite run that you've done? And then what was the worst or scariest run that you've done? We did extremely well about a month ago in Lake Placid. We beat four German sleds, including a former world championships medalist. That that run in bobsled... That, that is probably the best two runs that I have taken in a bobsled. The worst one or the scariest one that I've ever taken, we had some really, really painful, awful crashes in Whistler, British Columbia at, you know, at, at 93, 94 miles an hour, you know, sliding on our heads at that point because the sled flipped over. Uh, oh, my it was gosh. Very, it was very, very dangerous. Um, my fear in a bob is never for my safety. My fear is for the guys in back because for better or worse, I kind of always, it's my risk. I'm driving it. They're not, they're not doing anything other than 
providing the push to the sled and then jumping in. The moment they're in the sled, their job is done, except to keep in, in a low aerodynamic profile, their head between their legs, things like that. Now it's my job to get them to safety. Every time I felt fear in Bob has exclusively been for my boys, right? Like, I don't want to crash them. I don't want to screw them. I don't want to, I don't want to concuss them. So there were, there were some, some dangerous calls last year in the Olympic season where we flipped over at, you know, 90 plus miles an hour in these very tight turns. And the whole time I'm thinking like my head's getting bashed around, but the whole time thing is if I'm getting bashed around, I really hope they're not getting bashed around. So that was, that was usually tough. Back in Skeleton, I remember one spectacular one also in Lake Pass in 2017. Lake Pass is funny. I started my journey there. I was told I was terrible there. I didn't visit there for another three or four years. I had my best run ever there in Skeleton. Qualified for the Olympics on the final day there in 2018. And then had the best. <laughs> it was just something about that place that there's something about that place that that speaks that speaks to my sliding spirit. So when you have a crash like that. What what's going through your mind afterward? The number one thing for me is how are my boys? What's the age range of your team? Um, twenty one to twenty eight, uh, and I'm thirty two. Got it. Uh, the the second thing that goes through the mind is I want I need to go again. I do not want to end the day on a crash because mm-hmm. it can institute a mental block for which you ruminate on the crash. You spend way too much time thinking about the crash and then you come back the next time with that having been the visualization of what has occurred for the longest period of time. Only probably one or two occasions in which I've ended the day on a crash and that is when I was fearful for the for the um, sliding ability of the sled, for the safety of the equipment itself. A crash is very, very tough because... At 90 miles an hour, you've now you've now just started smashing walls, right? Like it's it's really bad for the sled to be in a crash. Have you had any injuries? Me, oh, tons, yeah. Um, <laughs> I broke my nose like seven or eight times. I'm getting oh it. My God. I'm getting it fixed for good on June 2nd of this year. Um, Ooh, we should wait until that. Just <laughs> I know, I know. It'll be small, I guess. Any other injuries besides the seven broken noses? All of my left side ribs, essentially. I <gasps> um, was from skeleton. Almost all the injuries I have are from skeleton. Jeez, I'm glad. I'm glad skeleton's not a picture anymore. I am too. The next Olympics is in 2026. What is it like when you train for so long, just to do a few runs, and particularly the Olympics because it's every four years, so you do all this training. And the day finally comes. What is the what is the pressure like in that moment? No one's going to even know whether you're doing well or not in the moment. It's very difficult as a layperson to to know whether you've succeeded in in doing what you want in skeleton. Not many people would see even how you're driving a skeleton sled. It's done by movements of you know minuscule movements of your neck, shoulders, knees, and toes. The driving force, I think, for me was I, I was sent here with the honor. Um, the country bestowed upon me this honor um, that I'll never be able to fully pay them back for. Right? Like, there's nothing that I can do that would give them back what they have given me. Um, and so, it's my responsibility to do as best as I can to make sure that I, that that the performance is worthy of them, and then forever after, 
it's a responsibility to act in a way befitting of that, of, of how your country allowed you to represent it. And then to impart lessons from that journey to others, which is why doing podcasts, talking to kids, things like that is so close to heart. Because otherwise, the Olympics are a very selfish endeavor, right? They're, they're purely personal if, if you don't use them as a force for good. I was bullied very, very heavily when I was in school. Uh, when I was between ages 10 to 12, it really changed my life uh, forever. Who I was before bullying and who I was after that period were two completely different human beings. There was just so much that occurred as a result of that bullying that it became a very um, personal mission to talk to kids about about it uh, when I grew up and, and about how I was motivated by it or the positive and negative repercussions for me because there were some positive, like I became more independent. I had to force myself to, to succeed. What was it like being that age going through something so horrible? I didn't really know how to deal with it. I tried to hide it from my parents because I, I didn't want them to think that they had, um, that they were like missing, you know, something, so to speak. What was your refuge during those years? If you couldn't go to your parents, did you go to your siblings or teachers or some other form of escapism? Um, I withdrew into myself. Uh, trying to invent things became yet another one. So just creativity, but in the form of just self, um, you know, self-contained. If you feel comfortable sharing, what was the shift between that age range? And was it a school? Like you went to a different school or just new year, new kids coming in? What was the cause of such? Uh, as a good catch, I did go to a new school. I, I transferred schools and I was the most religious person by far at the new school. So talking about it is, is really important, I think, for the overall conversation, because generally things that are not talked about are viewed as something to feel shame for. And I think kids... I think kids especially really internalize rejection and uh, bullying. You know, it's something about, you know, it, it's a form of rejection, right? Bullying is, is an extreme form of rejection in, in its usual circumstance. And children find, uh, children find rejection to be some sort of reflection on themselves rather than the truth, which is a reflection on those who are doing the bullying. So the more we talk about it, the more we kind of normalize the conversation about the fact that it exists and that it's unfortunately something that, you know, needs to be treated at some point, um, you know, the healthier the community gets and the more we can talk about it openly in the future. How do you view those kids who bullied you now? You know, it's, it's even hard to remember most of them. Uh, yeah. It was so long. I mean, now it's been. But in the moment, you know, you do you right. feel like you would ever have forgotten their faces or. Names. No, no. I mean, yeah. everything is so everything is so fatalistic when you're young. Right? Yeah, the world is ending, and this is the worst. And, um, yeah. and so, but but the reality is that um, I just don't know who they are anymore, for the most part. Yeah, you know. I, and if you did, you could send them your picture at the Olympics. <laughs> one of the one of the one of the key things that I that I have have taken from from my own personal journey is that everyone evolves and everyone changes yeah. people can uh people can become i mean who i was at, at 10 and who i was at 12 or 13 were were not the same human being right it's yeah. like it's like the one at 10 was knifed and gone 
Um, yeah. and so, and so people have life altering and life changing episodes and they, they drastically change, you know, I wouldn't even really hold it against people if I had met yeah. them, you know, if I, if I met them first, I do remember there was one episode where, um, we call this kid G and, you know, at one point I got really fed up with him. So I kind of just punched him in the mouth. Um, and he started, you know, crying, telling me not to tell a teacher about it because he was bleeding. I was like, I never was, I was never physical with anyone except for that incident. I was like really, really upset. Um, and, uh, and he, and he was crying. He's like, don't tell the teacher. I was like, I was like, why not? I just hurt you, bro. You know? And, and he said, because like, I think he had mentioned his parents were getting divorced or something like that. Like there was not so much good stuff going on at home. And at that point I was like, I feel so sorry for this kid, right? Like this is a kid who was like tormenting me about five minutes ago. Um, But I mean, I actually will never forget that, right? Because it it actually produced a profound shock uh, in me to realize that there's a whole side of why people are treating you the way they are. What are the words of wisdom or experiences that you share with kids um, and speak more on, speak more on how you spread the word about the importance of not bullying. <laughs> um, so I, I think I, I spent less time on the, uh, less time on the importance of not bullying because if someone's going to bully, yeah, feels pretty silly to say. <laughs> Do you know that you shouldn't bully? Right. It's just either misplaced anger or or some sort of things. What I try to reach is the kids who are being right because yeah. they're the ones who need the support. Yeah. Um, when I'm addressing a group of people, I don't want to specifically call anyone out. I, I generally just say, hey, given your age range, there's an, a greater than 80% chance that a few of you have been bullied in this room, um, you know, to a point where you've experienced some mental health, you know, difficulties as well. I just want you to know that it's never going to be a reflection on you being bullied. Bullying is someone trying to pull you down with a rope, they've attached a rope to you and they're trying to pull themselves up. And so it's not a reflection on anything except for your, your worth, right? Your worth is, is greater than theirs in, in their eyes. Um, and so just trying to shift the paradigm or shift the dynamic of how they view bullying, bullying from something that is a rejection of them to something that is actually probably based more than anything in some sort of envy. What are some of the reactions that have affected you? from kids you've spoken to? It's very touching, but it all, you know, at the same time makes me feel sad sometimes because there are some, for every child that I'm reaching, there's a hundred thousand children I'm not, right? And so that is, um, you know, there are other little AJs out there that are having their lives actively changed at the moment um, by kids who are bullying them. What is the work that you did after the intense years of bullying that you experienced in order to get to the place you are now of grace and some um, self-esteem and confidence. Actually, I think a lot of it was continual rejection in various forms that forces introspection. After every single period of, of time for which there's failure or rejection or, um, or bullying of any sort, there is a period of introspection and, and, more and more lessons are learned. So it wasn't an immediate process, 
you know, I didn't realize this until way later. I didn't realize it, let's say, at, at age 13. I was still drastically changed, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Um, it's only really in the last few years that I've been able to internalize a lot of these lessons and and carry them forward. I feel sad that they came almost so late in life, uh, where they really could have helped at age 15, 16, 17, etc. But at the same time, it also contributed to who I am and that I made the games, right? Like that yeah. self-propulsion is is what allowed me to get to the games. That that ability to be on my own in the wilderness uh, without you know any support there is allowed allowed me to be who I am today. So I'm not entirely um, sad about it. For other kids going through what you went through and dealing with the depression or anxiety, social anxiety, introversion, what words of advice do you have for them on how to get get out on the other side? I think therapy is really helpful. I think it's really hard to find a good therapist. I think it's incredibly difficult to find someone who resonates with you. And Lord knows I'm still searching. Um, Mm -hmm. There have been only once or twice in the past I found the right person, but, but traveling for my sport makes it I am possible to continue with that sort of thing. Um, so therapy is important. Talking to to your trusted and loved ones, your parents are important. I think children especially have a, a tendency to think that um, their parents don't get them. And I think in many respects, it can seem to be true. But just because your parents don't understand your exact situation does not mean that their breadth of knowledge and the lessons that they've learned, including from the time, you know, from the time period that they were in that you're currently in, don't apply uniquely to your situation. Right. So in some sense, I wish I wish I had spoken to my parents about my mental health struggles at age 13, yeah. 14, 15, 16, 17. My parents didn't figure out about my mental health struggles until age 27 or so. Wow. Um, until after my first games, when I spiraled after the game. After the games, I retired. There was a very anti-Semitic incident that took place at the Olympics. I spiraled out of control a little bit. Um, you know, just it, it sent me into very, very deep depression. And that's when, when I told my parents about the mental health struggles that I was facing. It took a very long time. Hiding that for years took a lot of energy. I think that would be the number one advice is, is talk. Right. And they can help. They can help find therapists. They can help find resources for you that Mm -hmm. as a kid, you just don't have access. to. The last thing I wanted to touch on is Jewish representation in sports, because we kind of have a self-fulfilling prophecy in our communities of Jews can't do sports. You know, any Jewish comedian loves to mention that. (laughs) You know, it's 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 a it's a hilarious trope we have, but it does come to some uh some negative effect that kids growing up in Jewish communities might not think that they actually can have a future in this. It's actually terrible how how we have reinforced this awful narrative of Jews not doing sports. It has mm-hmm. severely limited the investment that Jews place in sport and through that continues to perpetuate the cycle. Because if there's no investment in, in development of Jewish athletes, then kids don't have the resources to excel and become good Jewish athletes. There's no Jewish gene that makes you garbage at sport. It's just the fact that no one's prioritized it. It would be, it would be the same as if you went to anyone of any race 
and we're like, well, you're just bad at books. Yeah. Right? And they'd be like, what? Oh, your brain's just bad at it. Your body's not built for it. Now, yeah. true, Jews are maybe not born to be the best 100-meter sprinters. But yeah. then again, so is 99% of the world's population. Yeah. But we are very good at, at excelling and, and, you know, at things that we set our mind to. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it is crazy to me how, how this self-fulfilling prophecy goes, especially considering the heavy over-representation we have in sports management. Yeah, that's really important to know. A few years ago, I was trying to desperately save the team. Someone who had said they were going to fund the team was not able to fund the team. And so I was in the hole by a significant amount. Uh, and I just I, I needed some funds to basically have the team continue to exist. I called up maybe 25 sports team owners, major sports team owners, NBA owners, NFL owners, NHL, MLB, people who who are legit bona fide multi-multi-billionaire. I said, hey, this is a tax-deductible donation for a team that is very good. It's very talented, but I need to save it because if we save it, we have an incredibly good shot at the Olympic Games and it could create a real generational shift in what we perceive to be possible for Israelis and Arabs, you know, to accomplish because the team is half Arab at the time. It was 75% Arab. I was the only Jew on the team. Each and every one of them said no, right? Not, not just no, but like, Hey, I don't even need like an a thousand dollar tax deduction. Like it was just laughing, screaming. No, like, don't call me again. This is like, like, it's not, I mean, most often I just heard it's not in our giving profile. That to me doesn't make sense, right? You're a Jewish sports team owner. You have a responsibility in the same way that I have a responsibility as a, as a Jewish Olympian to raise up other Jewish athletes and to tell them that what they're doing is possible and to try to support them. Now, every, every donation I get, a percentage of that goes to a fund to give a grant to a deserving Jewish athlete. There's no reason why that should be a higher priority for me than someone who owns an NFL team. So at the time, I called up a family who, who you know, owned an NFL team. They're Jewish. And I said, you know, I had this whole talk. And, um, and it was actually the wife, right? The wife had picked up the phone. And she was, she was like, yeah, this is not even close to what we care about, you know? Mm. And then, and then <laughs> I said, I said, but we can, you know, we'll probably make the Olympics, right? Like, it's, yeah. you know, it's relatively nothing. And she's like, yeah, good luck with that. And she started laughing and she just hung up the phone. I mean, it hurts because someone has just told me that what I find to be an incredibly valid and noble endeavor is is worthless. How can the, the goal of increasing Jewish participation in sport be so low on a priority list that you belittle it, right? Not that you say like, hey, we just have a lot of other things that we need to take care of, but to actively belittle it. It's not a joke. Jews competing in sports are not a joke. Jews competing in sports are good and it's noble and it's holy and it's it's great, right? Sports are a means of self-development, self-expression, of becoming uh, an ambassador of yourself and your people and your country. Give me a quick, uh, what does the future hold? Anything that you want to share with our audience about what are plans for AJ Edelman and 
sliding sports? Uh, the plans are Israel's got to get to this Olympics. Israel has to qualify for the games in 2026 in bobsled, and we will. Uh, like, I swear it, we will if we find the funds. Otherwise, um, I just don't know what else the future holds. I eventually have to start a family, eventually have to um, find a wife, a partner, something like that. Hopefully one that um, is supportive this time around. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's what the future holds, I guess. On that note, let's raise our glass. Raise our so goods. I'm drinking our acai of relief smoothie. AJ is drinking the any greens necessary. necessary. So AJ, to send us on our way, what words of wisdom would you like to impart <laughs> on our listeners? We'll do a little chayim. Uh So I'd say the, the words of wisdom are, are honestly any any time that you have a, a fuel, uh, even if it's even if it's negative energy, that energy can be redirected towards more positive things and towards self improvement. It's really hard. But it can be. And so uh, try it. Like, really try your best. I love that. AJ, thank you so, so much for your time. This was really great and informative. My pleasure. L'chaim. L'chaim. Shabbat shalom. Thank you. I should make a, a like, kiddush on this thing.